0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
0: And I'm Tracy McRae.
1: He went to an express care clinic with symptoms of the flu, but his visit led to a diagnosis of a potentially fatal heart problem. A nurse
2: practitioner who had changed my life, and uh, maybe in some ways he maybe saved my life. After she said I had the flu, she uh, came up to me very closely She said, do you know you have a heart murmur? And she wasn't alarmist, but she was very deliberate. And she said, you need to check this out. And she said, you should do this sooner than later.
3: During American Heart Month, a personal story of a genetically linked heart defect and how it was treated.
1: Also on the program, the little-known sacroiliac joints in your lower back can cause a lot of chronic pain.
3: And hot tubs are made for relaxing, but can using them also be good for your health?
1: All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. February is American Heart Month, a time when we do our best to raise awareness about detecting and preventing heart disease. Every year during Heart Month, we interview heart specialists on this program about the latest in diagnosis and treatment. Well, this year, we're going to take a slightly different approach and bring you the personal story of someone who, thanks to a skilled and alert nurse practitioner at an express care Clinic, was diagnosed with a serious heart issue that could have led to his sudden death.
3: The heart problem in this case was hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or HCMC. That's when the heart muscle is too big. And here with his personal story about HCMC is our guest, Ron Petrovich. Ron is Communications Director for News and News Delivery in the Department of Public Affairs at Mayo Clinic, He's also our boss here at Mayo Clinic Radio. Welcome to the program, Ron. We're really happy to ha- that you're here.
2: It's great to be here, Tracy, and feeling so wonderful. Yes. <laughs> also to
3: see you. Also in the studio is Dr. Jeffrey Geske. Dr. Geske is a Mayo Clinic heart disease specialist who treats patients in the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy clinic. And we're happy that you're here too, Dr. Geske.
4: Thanks so much for mm-hmm. having me here. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Mr. Ron Petrovich, you
1: must be happy and glad that you work at the at the Mayo Clinic.
4: I am so fortunate to have
2: this condition and be at Mayo Clinic and one of the few places in the country that specializes in treatment like this.
1: So, tell us the story. It's, it's such a great story and so interesting and so good to see you looking so well. It's, uh, I, I, like I say, I feel so fortunate and so
2: lucky that I'm here and um, a nurse practitioner who had... Um, she changed my life, and uh, maybe in some ways she maybe saved my life.
3: Uh, at a grocery store express clinic, grocery, no less. Right. That's the best part. Well, you must have been sick.
2: I, I had the flu back in um, in April. I uh, had horrible coughing, a uh, pounding headache, and every time I swallowed it, it felt like razor blades. I had... Uh, <laughs> been out of work for a few days and I thought, you know what, I'm going to check this out today. So I went to the uh, Mayo Clinic Express Care at uh, Hy-Vee Grocery Store in Rochester (laughs) and um, that's where I met uh, nurse practitioner Dawn Caterbeck and she diagnosed me with the flu and um, she said uh, after she she said I had the flu, she uh, came up to me very closely and she said, "Um, do you know you have a heart murmur? And I said, uh, no, I wasn't aware of that. She said, let me listen again. And she said, I hear kind of like a whooshing sound. And she said, I'm going to listen again. And um, it's relatively pronounced. And she wasn't alarmist, but she was very deliberate. And she said, you need to check this out. And she said, you should do this sooner than later. Hmm. So what I did then, I I called my family physician and uh, saw him that same day. And he noticed the heart murmur as well and uh had ordered an echocardiogram which is like uh, Dr. Geski can explain that more but like an ultrasound of the heart and um a few hours later i get a call from my uh, physician um you know the day you go to the doctor for the flu he uh, calls me with some unexpected news and said that um you have a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy it's a genetic condition in which you have an
1: enlarged heart heart muscle and um, so inherited you had inherited this, but never knew that anybody in your family had it. Or I,
3: that you had it.
1: No, I, I had no
2: clue, and that's why I feel so lucky. And, um, you know, my, my, my father had had um, uh, quintuple bypass surgery, but not for this. Uh, my mom had uh, stent My mom had stents, and um, my grandparents had had some issues, but never, you know, the HCM, like what we're talking about today. So I had no clue. So what did he tell you uh, about the condition and what you should do? Well, thankfully, he said, you know, Mayo Clinic is one of the places in the country that specializes in this, and we have a center, and we can treat it. And, um, you know, following that news, I... um, You know, I I had a series of tests. I had uh, I underwent an MRI, a chest X-ray, blood work, uh, electrocardiogram, uh, stress test, and then I went under the care of uh, Dr. Geske and his team at HCM, and uh, we started a treatment of some medications, of uh, a beta blocker. And uh, for the next several months, we just kind of monitored to see how I how I was feeling. Um, You know, when I received some of this news too, I felt a sense of relief because I had noticed when I thought back, maybe I had some of these symptoms. Um, I've always been very active and physical. I I ran in a marathon. I've done some half marathons. I worked out maybe five or six days a week. And some days I I couldn't even get my breath after walking maybe just a few houses down our street. I'd go for walks with my wife. Some days it would be fine. But then some days I couldn't even walk up a flight of stairs. And, And I would tell my wife, it's like, you know, some days I just can't catch my wind. And it mm-hmm. wasn't even from, from, um, uh, excessive exertion. It was just from, from barely walking. So all of a sudden I felt like, okay, now I know that I, I've got these symptoms and conditions. And, um, so we started treating it. And then, um, you know, we watched it over, over the summer. And, um, I was asked in, um, in one appointment, um, rate your um, how you feel on a scale of one to ten, with ten being good and and one not being so good. And um, this was back in uh, October, and I said, you know, by the end of every day, I feel like I'm about a three. <laughs> and
5: and so at good. that point,
2: it's like, okay, let, let's have surgery. Right. So, um, you know, thankfully, there's a procedure. Um, with uh, I had uh, um, septal myectomy with Dr. Hartzell Schaff and. Um, I had that in December, and two months later, I feel amazing. I, On a I, scale of one to ten, I feel a ten right now. And I didn't know how bad I felt because I didn't know how well I was feeling you right good, now, good and feel. I could wow. compare it. So, Doctor
3: um, Geske, is it unusual? I'm not going to say anything at all about how old Ron is, but is it unusual for someone who is an adult to not know that they have this heart condition?
4: You know, that's, that's a really great question. And with this condition, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, it's interesting because we really see a huge spectrum of how patients present. And it's not that unusual to have a very fit Good looking gentlemen such as yourself come in and say, you know, I, I've just started feeling differently recently and have someone who hears a murmur or have a test that reveals that the heart is thick and we realize that this is a condition that's been there all along that the heart muscle has been thick, but now it's just starting to cause problems. And that's a, not an uncommon presentation. How could, All of this
3: time, no one else had ever detected that murmur like that nurse did at the grocery store.
4: We know that the murmur that goes along with this heart condition is something that can come and go. And it could be that when you had the flu and you're low Mm -hmm. on fluids because of the razor blades in the throat and you're kind of the tank is running empty... That in those in those settings, that murmur became louder, and thank goodness you had a, a really fantastic provider who was paying attention. They didn't just say, well, it looks like you got the flu and move on. They took the time to listen, and, and hearing that really set into course the all the events that have happened that have gotten you feeling so much better.
1: I thought you people just wore those around your neck to look good. I mean, you could actually use them. You know... My wife, miss- my
4: wife thinks the same thing, you know. <laughs> She's like, how come you always have that on your neck? But, <laughs> but it's amazing that, the, that just hearing a murmur can really change what we know about someone and can really put us in the right direction.
1: All right. Uh, before we take a break, we need to know what is this condition? What
4: did uh, Mr. Petrovich have? So uh, the words hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, refer to thickening of the heart walls that's not secondary to something else. So the heart walls didn't get thick because of high blood pressure or a valve problem. Instead, they're thick because of genes, because of something that you're born with. And that thickening of the heart muscle then can lead to people feeling like they're running out of energy, running out of gas. And it's a, it's a condition that's important to an- identify not only for getting the patient feeling better, but also for looking at their relative's given that it is inherited. All right, muscles too thick. That's right. We're talking about hypertrophic
3: cardiomyopathy with Mayo Clinic Communications Director Ron Petrovich and heart disease specialist Dr. Jeffrey Geske. We're going to take a short break.
1: When we come back, myth or matter of fact, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy affects far more men than it does women. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are back talking about a genetic heart disorder called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. The heart muscle actually gets too thick, and it's also referred to as HCM. Our guests are Mayo Clinic Communications Director Ron Petrovich, who was diagnosed with HCM last year, and Mayo Clinic Heart Disease Specialist Dr. Jeffrey Geske.
3: So Dr. Geske, myth or matter of fact, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy affects far more men than it does women.
4: You know, I think that we've got the myth there. This is a disease that doesn't fall in an inheritance pattern that affects men more than women. In fact, in large population studies, we've even seen very slightly more women who have this, so just slightly over half. Now, how do you figure
1: out? Was it the echocardiogram that Ron
4: had that told you that that's what the problem was? So the diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a clinical diagnosis, meaning that the physician must make the diagnosis, but we really use the ultrasound of the heart or echocardiogram as a key tool in making that diagnosis. It tells us how thick the heart is and shows us how the blood that passes through that thick heart moves. And with that information and then talking to the patient and making sure that that thickness is not from something else, we make the diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy.
1: So the muscle gets so thick that it interferes with the flow of the blood, and that's what uh, you listen, that's what causes the murmur.
4: Yeah, I think a great way to think about this is like a garden hose. So if you turn a garden hose on, normally the water just comes out the end of the hose nice and easily. But if you take your thumb and put it over the end of the hose, all of a sudden that water flow becomes turbulent. And if you listen, it goes, shh, (laughs) shh. And that thick heart wall can get in the way of the blood flow just like a thumb over the end of the garden hose. And so that's the murmur, that noise, that shh. That was heard when Mr. Petrovich came into the urgent care, and with your stethoscope, could you tell what the problem was, or
1: can you or is it do you have to differentiate that from a heart valve problem, et cetera?
4: You know, there are certain parts of the murmur that can sound like a heart valve problem, and there are maneuvers that we can do in the office, having people bear down or go from a squatting position to a standing position that change how the murmurs sound and give us hints that it's related to this hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And putting that examination together with the echocardiogram really gives us the whole picture.
3: It sounds like it would, it should be an emergency. How is it that you can put off that type
4: of a surgery? As we said, that this disease can really present in a lot of different ways. And there can be times when the initial presentation is a scary one. Sometimes you hear about these young athletes who are in, in their prime with no symptoms and then all of a sudden die on the football field. Sometimes that's hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and that's certainly a really scary event. There are other people who can have this heart condition and live their whole life with virtually no symptoms so we see the huge spectrum and we saw with Mr. Petrovich that he was feeling kind of low on energy running out of wind (laughs) and that's a pretty common presentation perhaps the most common presentation is running out of air with activity many times it doesn't change much once someone has grown out of adolescence that the thickness over time stays pretty uh, similar but even though the thickness doesn't change there seems to be a certain tipping point when people sometimes develop symptoms, whereas they didn't have them before. And so in those patients who develop symptoms, we turn to medicines. And when medicines fail to control the symptoms, that's when we start thinking about a surgery.
3: And so it was lucky that you had the flu, Ron.
2: Yeah, otherwise I don't know if I would have even known about this today.
3: What's your message? Now you're in the position, you've got a story to tell. You can be an advocate.
2: Yes, my, my message is um, I'm involved or I like to contribute to um, social media. There is a Mayo Clinic patient HCM page and there's a hypertrophic uh, cardiomyopathy uh, Facebook page. And and when I can, it's, um, you know, can share the experience, what, what I went through and um, and others have um, questions maybe, you know, as they're going through it or maybe pre-surgery or post, post-op things like that. So, um, I, I feel that I can contribute that way. And um, you know, just try to reassure people that, uh, especially from the surgery standpoint, if they go through this, um, a few weeks later, you're going to feel much, much better.
3: We love this program because we can use it as an avenue to tell patient stories. We've done that over the years. And I'm just going to say, when you, we had our last meeting with you before you left for your surgery, we all had this moment where we thought, we hope you see you again, Ron. I mean, you know, <laughs> we, we all laughed about it, and, and it, but we thought, this is a big deal. Having heart surgery is a big deal. Big deal. What was that like?
2: Um. It was surreal, but I felt such a sense of calm and confidence knowing who the surgeon was. And, and it was at Mayo Clinic, like I said, Dr. Hartzell Schaff and, and Mayo Clinic. The care could not have been any better. It was, um, super. I mean, the nurses, the care team, the, the pre-team with Dr. Geski's team providing the guidance, uh, during the surgery and, and then after I'm going through cardiac rehab now and the same, you know, the same type of people. They're caring and, um, you know, they're pushing right now too. They say you, you need that if you're going to, uh, you know, reach the level of, of what you can in, in recuperation, so they
1: said, don't spend too much time sitting around talking on the radio. is what they told you. <laughs> so, <laughs> Dr. Geske, I want to know. Uh, so, you, it sounds like you tried medication, and then that didn't work so well for uh, Mr. Petrovich. So he went ahead and, and had the surgery. What, what exactly
4: happens in the surgery? I know you weren't there, but you yeah. know. Yeah, absolutely. So in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy who have symptoms that are medically refractory, meaning we've tried medicines and we've either run into vital sign parameters that we can't get past or their symptoms just are not well enough relieved, then we think about ways to relieve that obstruction of flow, that shh. the turbulence out of the garden hose. That's right. And uh, there are different ways to do that. And here at Mayo Clinic, uh, many times we do a surgery that removes a piece of the muscle that's in the way. And the, the best way to think of that is just lifting the thumb off the garden hose, or maybe even amputating the thumb off the garden hose. So what that does is it allows blood to exit the heart without running into that area of turbulence because we take a small piece of muscle out of the heart, remove that muscle that's in the way, and now blood can exit without obstruction. So he goes
1: into the operating room. They have to split his chest, open open his chest, uh, put him on the heart-lung machine, stop the heart from beating, open the heart, take some of the muscle out of the middle of the heart, and close everything back up.
4: That's, that's, that's pretty close to true. And, and it sounds like a hours and hours and hours long procedure. But with our expertise, it's just amazing how efficient the cardiac surgery team is here. And the actual part where they open up the, the blood vessels inside and take out the muscle, that period of time is sometimes only minutes. Are
1: you sure you feel okay? <laughs>
4: <laughs> oh, no, that's, it's fabulous what they do.
3: And I have a final question. Is there a genetic test for HCMC if this is a family history type of a situation?
4: That's a, that's a really great question. And once we identify a patient as having hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, then we need to think about affected relatives, so children, siblings, parents, and so in those, in those family members, we can really take one of two approaches. One approach is to try and find the gene that has caused the heart to become thick. And we are able to do that in a, in a subgroup of patients where we do blood tests. We find that's the gene that caused it, and we can screen relatives who, to see if they have that gene. In some other patients, we either choose not to screen or we don't find the gene. And in those patients' family members, what we want to do is we want to take a look at the heart with an ultrasound or an echocardiogram to see if their family members' hearts have become thickened, as would be the case if they had hypertrophic cardiomyopathy.
1: All right. Dr. Jeff Rageski, heart specialist with a particular interest in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I saw you took your stethoscope off. Put it back on. You've got to go back to work. (laughs) All right. right. (laughs) And Mr. Ron Petrovic, yes. Perfect. Uh, News Director, Department of Public Affairs, Mayo Clinic, Ron Petrovich, thanks so much for being here and telling your it's story. It's a pleasure to be here. You guys do such a great job every Saturday. Thank you.
3: It's a big praise from our boss. <laughs> Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, the little-known sacroiliac joints in the lower back are often the cause of chronic pain.
1: And hot tubs, are they good for your health? Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email. At Mayo Clinic Radio at mayo.edu.
3: Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. The flu season is ramping up. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, activity of the influenza virus is increasing and widespread in the U.S. Experts from Mayo Clinic encourage people who have not yet gotten a flu shot to do so now. The CDC recommends that all people age six months or over, with few exceptions, get vaccinated. Mayo Clinic infectious diseases specialist Dr. Pratish Tosh says there's been a slow and mild start to the flu season, but... Don't let that fool you into thinking it's over.
2: Right now, the influenza epidemic in the United States is still increasing. There's some parts of the United States where it hasn't really hit its epidemic uh, proportions. So it would be a really good time for somebody who has not got their flu shot to get it right now.
0: By getting a flu shot, you can protect yourself and others from contracting the virus, which can cause severe respiratory symptoms, including sore throat, coughing, congestion, fever, and body aches. Dr. Tosh also says the strain that's circulating has been here before.
2: So it's mostly with an H1N1 virus, the same Virus that circulated during the 2009 pandemic.
0: So get your flu shot if you haven't already. And in other news, as World Health leaders continue to meet and seek ways to fight the Zika virus pandemic, the World Health Organization has put together a $56 million Zika virus strategic response plan that includes fast-tracking, research, and development of vaccines. Currently, there is no vaccine for the mosquito-borne Zika virus, which has now been found in 39 countries, Mayo Clinic experts say more work needs to be done for Zika virus vaccine development. Now, most people who are infected with the Zika virus, about 80%, show no symptoms, and 20% have mild symptoms, which may include fever, rash, joint pain, and conjunctivitis. But there is an association between Zika and a certain birth defect called microcephaly. This story is ongoing. And also, obesity and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder are common conditions in the U.S. Research led by experts at Mayo Clinic shows there is a connection between the two. In a study published in the journal Mayo Clinic Proceedings, the researchers found that for women, there is an association between having ADHD as a child and being obese as an adult. Study author Dr. Seema Kumar says the results suggest people need to make adjustments to prevent obesity. Obesity increases your risk of conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, and some cancers. With your Mayo Clinic Minute, I'm Vivian Williams. And for more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, when we think about joints, it's usually the common ones like the hip or the knee or maybe the shoulder. Those are the ones that usually come to mind. But there is another pair of joints in your body that aren't quite as obvious or as well recognized, but which can also cause their own share of pain.
3: We're talking about the sacroiliac joints, which are in your lower back, where the spine and pelvis are connected. Now, these joints can become inflamed, and the result can be pain in your buttocks or lower back, and this pain can extend on one or both of your legs, and it sounds terrible.
1: Well, lots of things can be wrong with the sacroiliac <laughs> joints, including inflammation, which we call sacroiliitis. But you remember, I would remember when I was a kid, some of the, the adults used to say, ooh, it's my sacroiliac.
3: <laughs> I don't hear that anymore. Do you? I guess People not. People don't say that it's anymore. It's falling out of fashion.
1: We're going to visit with a sacroiliac joint specialist, Dr. Woody Cross. He's an orthopedic surgeon at the Mayo Clinic and also a trauma specialist. Dr. Woody Cross, welcome to the program. Good to Thank night. you very
6: much. Pleasure F- to be here. So First,
1: tell us about these yeah. joints. Yeah, so, well, where
6: are, are they? And
1: Tracy has trouble saying <laughs> sacroiliac. So we'll <laughs> sure. talk about those joints.
6: Absolutely. So the sacroiliac joint is, a, is the joint that joins the ilium and the sacrum, which is the lower part of the spinal column. The joint. Okay, and the
1: ilium is that part of your pelvis that you can you can feel exactly. Like, That's like, what you set what? your
6: hip, your hands on. Yeah, in your, your hip.
1: So. Hold your belt up. Exactly. All right, and exactly. in back that connects with the sacrum, which yes. is the lower part underneath the lumbar spine, the low back. Exactly. And where those two meet, sacroiliac joint.
6: That's exactly right. And you know, we we call it a joint, but when we often think with of joints, we think about the knee or the hip or the elbow, which is highly mobile. The sacroiliac joint only moves about one to two degrees and displaces only about a millimeter. So not really a true joint in the way we think about it. Not much motion? Very, very little. In in some patients, however, that little bit of motion is exquisitely painful, and we are not quite sure why that is. What, what can go wrong?
1: Is that joint prone to arthritis?
6: In my practice, there's about a... Uh, 40 to 50% of my patients do have arthritis related to it. Uh, The other half have what we call this adjacent segment disease, or what I attribute to a decrease in motion up above the SI joint, which increases the amount of motion that the SI joint sees. And we see that oftentimes after patients have spine fusion surgeries where they eliminate those motion segments up above it.
1: Oh, and then that causes more motion at the sacroiliac joint, and because of the joint wasn't designed for that, it ultimately becomes painful?
6: That's exactly right. Right.
1: Now, I thought you were a trauma surgeon. I thought maybe we'd be talking about uh, injuries to the sacroiliac joint. How would you get inter- interested in the, in the sacroiliac joint
6: when so, it wasn't subject to injury? Exactly. Well, that's a great question. So the trauma surgeon's specialist is, is, is the pelvis, and the sacrum in particular, and we deal with car accidents and falls and all sorts of high energy trauma that involve the sacroiliac joint, whether it's a fracture through the sacrum, a fracture through the pelvis, or a separation of that joint completely. So to get involved in this area was sort of by happenstance with my spine colleagues. They would have this patient who would have pain in the SI joint, and being that was in my wheelhouse, they would ask my opinion on how best to treat it, and. The practice developed, and sort of became this uh, specialty of mine, and have uh, it's really taken off.
1: By the way, Trace, you can say SI joint instead, and, and it's not Sports <laughs> Illustrated. It's the sacred yeah. iliac joint we're
6: you talking about. You know
1: what? And saying
3: that you're an SI expert is all right, too. <laughs> yeah. I'm just yeah. thinking, what I'm thinking is, it, because the population is aging, is this a problem that affects older people, or is it more younger people that would have accidents? Where is, where, who are your patients?
6: It really runs the whole spectrum from post- Traumatic arthritis in the younger patient, all the way to the geriatric patient who has insufficiency fractures of their sacrum or the pelvis with subsequent arthritis of that joint.
1: Insufficiency fractures?
6: Some patients that have relatively severe osteopenia. Osteoporosis can have stress fractures in the sacrum that don't heal. Whether it's just from no trauma or it's a simple fall down some down onto a chair, they can have fractures that don't heal, and then that can precipitate the SI joint pain or sacroiliac joint pain. Okay, so
1: they have weakness of their bone for some reason. Yes, and and osteopenia is mild osteoporosis. Exactly, brittle bones.
6: Yes. Okay.
3: So do children, when children have injuries, does that set them up for problems with the SI joint later on down the line? They don't really experience it right away?
6: We're not sure yet. Ah. We're not sure. We don't have a lot of long-term outcome data with sacral iliac diseases related to post-traumatic situations. So it's hard to know. It's really hard to predict who's going to get it and who doesn't get it.
1: So what about symptoms? What do you look for? What suggests to you that a patient complains of that, that means that they may well have a, mm-hmm. a trouble with their
6: SI joint? So we're we're getting better and better at recognizing this. For the longest time, cigarette joint diseases and pain has not been well recognized. And, and I have this saying that I like to teach that, that the eye only sees what the mind knows. And so I like to get out there and talk about SI disease to other care providers so that they can learn to recognize it. To recognize it, it's oftentimes associated with pain in the backside. It can radiate around to the front of the thighs, down the back of the thighs, and to the side. It's often mis- uh, misconstrued with uh, a radicular pain, which is a pinched nerve in the back. This pain is uh, very usually central on the back of the uh, SI joint. There's a bump back there. We call it the posterior superior iliac spine, and we can in the in the office we can palpate that, touch it, and press on it. And there's a couple specific tests which are very specific for SI joint and when those are positive uh, we can give the patient a diagnosis but oftentimes these specialized tests aren't something that are routinely done in the office so uh, this is why it's oftentimes overlooked as a source of chronic pain in the low back. Uh,
3: In my head when I'm hearing what you're talking about those symptoms you know the pain that goes down around and down your leg that's just Mm -hmm. sounds like a some sort of sciatic nerve
6: issue. It's exactly what people confuse it with. And the onus is on the, is on the surgeon to really help elucidate, is this a ridicular pain? Is this sciatica? Is this coming from the SI joint pain? And so it can be a diagnostic dilemma, uh, at times. And it, it's, in my practice, it's, uh, critical evaluation of the history, the physical exam, actually touching the patient, doing a formal physical exam. And then we do have some diagnostic tests that we can do, uh, to help us confirm that that's the problem. But by and large, History and physical exam in my hands are the most reliable ways to to diagnose this problem.
1: You see those people that I used to hear say, Oh, it's my sacroiliac they were right and their doctor just didn't recognize it. <laughs> and now they do.
3: Well and everybody that the the adults now all say, Oh, it's my sciatic nerve. Sciatic,
1: yep. oh, and I so sciatica. now I'm thinking
3: all these people that I know mm-hmm. that complain about their sciatic nerve, maybe it's not. Maybe they need to come to you and talk SI. S <laughs> I <laughs> is that what you want? You want everyone to come and get their SI joint checked?
6: An open door. Okay, very yeah. good.
1: <laughs> and then let's assume they do have a problem there. You've determined that that, in fact, is the source of their discomfort. Mm-hmm. What do you do?
6: So I think still the mainstay of chronic low back pain and sickle iliac pain is no different, is that the mainstay is non-operative. And that's going to be a series of supporting measures with medication management with non steroids Physical therapy, concentrating on core strengthening exercises, and activity modification, weight loss—all of those uh, are, are what I recommend on every patient at the first time I see them.
3: I like how you just tack weight loss on at the the fourth thing. <laughs> I would imagine that would be the first thing that people would want to start with.
6: You know, I always always talk about that. Oftentimes, it's something we don't address specifically in our in our uh, physician encounters with our patients, but I think that is critical. That in physical exercise keeping mobile and keeping strong are just absolutely paramount to back health and SI joint health. You mentioned
3: core strengthening. What do you mean just what type of
6: core exercises should people be doing? So that's a great point. So a lot of patients look on of my office and I'll suggest core strengthening, and they're like, doctor, I do sit-ups all the time. <laughs> and it's a lot more than just sit-ups. And our physical therapists are highly trained at core strengthening programs, and this involves hip flexors. The erector spinase in the spine, your inter abdominal musculature, all are related to stability of the core of the body, the, the lower thorax and the pelvis. And by by emphasizing the strength of those, that particular muscle group has been proven to decrease back pain and uh, and improve uh, SI joint pain. So core strengthening and, and a physical therapy guided program is is. Paramount in my mind.
1: Don't you just love it when a surgeon doesn't think that surgery is the way to solve your problem?
6: I'm I'm very
3: skeptical, of you guys, when that happens. <laughs> no, no, but it no, makes me no. I'm delightful, delight delighted to hear that.
1: But there may be a time, right? I, because I've seen you do it. You put some screws mm-hmm. across that that joint, so I know occasionally surgery is is helpful.
6: That's exactly right. When when all else fails, and I say the end of the road. And then that's the time when I intervene with, with with surgical intervention. And the way that I do that is through what we call sacral iliac joint fusion. And we've heard fusions for ankle fusions and other joints in the body that we fuse and they become painful. The SI joint in my mind is really no different. They, they become pain-free. They become Ideally. Yeah. Okay. Ideally. It's a, it's a, it's a challenging diagnosis, and the surgery is a, a challenge sometimes. But we strive to get that pain score down to zero, and uh, in some cases we can do that. As
1: a last resort, put some screws across there, fuse the joint, or make it solid, and that hopefully gets rid of the pain. Exactly. Not too often you have to do that, though.
6: Not, not very often.
1: All right, Dr. Woody Cross, orthopedic surgeon, trauma specialist at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us. We Thank learned you. a lot Thank about you very the.
3: Much. Say it, Tracy. Sacroili SI joints. <laughs> we're going to take a short break when we come back. Hot tubs were made for relaxing, but can using them also be good for your health? We'll find out.
1: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It's no secret, hot tubs were made for relaxing climb into one, either alone or with your friends, and it seems like a good way to unwind at the end of a hectic day. I wish I had one.
3: Are you uh, shopping? (laughs) Are you doing a little dream shopping here is what's happening?
1: I think we might have to.
3: But could spending time in a hot tub actually be good for your health? Does it help to reduce stress and lower the blood pressure? And are hot tubs safe to use, especially if you've been diagnosed with heart disease? Here to
1: talk about hot tub safety and stress reduction is Dr. Thomas Allison. Dr. Allison is director of the Integrated Stress Testing Center and the Sports Cardiology Clinic at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Doctor Allison. Good to have you with us. All right, thank you. I like what you're saying with regard to hot tubs. What is it that made you want to study the health effects of hot tubs?
5: Well, we were actually um, motivated to study the negative health effects of hot tub. There was a uh, the National uh, Consumer Product uh, Group released a report. Showing, I, I think the number was maybe 34 or 37 hot tub deaths over a period of time. And uh, at the time I did this research, I was actually approached by the director of uh, a local YMCA saying, you know, do I need what regulations do I need? Um, our, our initial plan was to study hot tub, steam room, sauna, but we sort of focused on the hot tub as something that we could reproduce better in the in the lab.
3: So this all started out for that list of rules that are on the wall next to the hot tub or the sauna. That's what they were looking for. Uh,
5: that that's correct. Yes. You said 37 deaths? Yes, from hot tubs. Right. And
1: what had, what caused those? Or did well, you even that, look
5: into that? Yeah, you, you, no no we we looked into that and basically they were drownings. The danger of the hot tub there's a twofold danger. Number one is falling asleep in the hot tub. Oh. Okay, and so people at um, the end
3: of a long day, at the
5: end of a long day, sure. they stay in the hot tub too long. They have a couple of drinks of alcohol. You know, we know that whereas a glass of wine is good for the heart, four or five glasses of wine isn't Not necessarily so good for the heart, particularly if you have to drive home afterward <laughs> or but but even so, um the more extreme exposures uh, can cause problems. And, and my, my first research actually was looking at hot tubs and alcohol consumption. And whereas the alcohol had a relatively small physiologic effect, um, alcohol obviously diminishes good judgment. And so people aren't watching the clock They're, you know, they, I mean, you know, people do stupid things after they've been drinking. And so, People overstayed their welcome in the hot tub, fell asleep, and drowned. Typically, Uh, they were bathing alone. hmm. Uh, Typically, they were bathing alone. The water temperature was frequently above the recommended limits. And again, that's the kind of things you might do when you've had a couple of drinks to sort of crank it up high or see how long, you know, uh, use use it inappropriately um the second the second thing is there was head trauma associated so that people as they stood up to get out of the tub had a sinkable episode from fainting from, they fainted fell back in the tub and drowned so you don't so, want to go in there alone so it it's wasn't the bottom line.
3: It yeah, yeah. With well a buddy, sit in the hot tub with yeah a buddy.
5: yeah so the number of people that had sort of a Primary heart attack caused by the stress of the hot water. That was very minimal. It was, it was really judgment errors. All right, enough about the bad.
1: Okay. Let's, let's talk about the good. <laughs> you've he, also he studied wants to that, right? one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now you, you know, you've almost talked me out of it. Now. No, 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 no. It's, um, when
5: you when you look at the denominator, when you look at the denominator of how many person hours are spent in the hot tub. Thirty-seven is a pretty small number. Okay, right. so so we we, we have to uh, we, we have to really look at the total exposure.
1: So it's, and, as, safe and as, it's <laughs> as safe as flying.
5: It's as safe as flying. Okay.
1: Okay. What's good about
5: it? There is a study we did here, and I was one of the co-investigators, and we looked at sauna bathing in patients with heart failure, and and actually showed in a small study positive benefits from the vasodilatation reducing afterload uh, in the heart failure patients uh, had
3: explain that vasodilatation what does that mean? Well
5: that, that means that means your blood vessels dilate. I mean in other words your blood vessels relax get bigger. your blood vessels get bigger, relax the blood flows more readily um, out of the heart it unloads some of the pressure and work on the heart and allows the patient with a weak heart to have some some recovery. And of course you might say well that's only a transient recovery but we did show that with regular bathing there seemed to be some sort of residual benefit or mm. residual effect.
3: And um, what about uh, you said a sauna a hot tub is the same can we can we say a sauna or a hot tub either way?
5: I believe we can. Yes. I mean there there are some differences so in the hot tub, you're, you're sitting up, but you heat up faster in the hot tub because the specific heat of water is much higher than
1: the specific heat of air. And there's some carryover. It doesn't just lower your blood pressure while you're in there. It, it seems to lower your blood pressure for a longer period of time when you get out. That's right. That's wow, right. Pretty incredible. And you like it for stress reduction? Good for stress good, at the end of the day? Good for stress at the end of the day. All right. And not too much alcohol. And not and not too much alcohol. Exactly.
3: <laughs> All right. I'd say write that check, Dr. Shives.
1: Yeah, I think so. <laughs> one, and take your partner with you.
3: That's right. Swim with the buddy. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much, Dr. All right. Allison. Dr. Allison is the director of the Integrated Stress Testing Center and the Sports Cardiology Clinic at Mayo Clinic. Thank you for being here.
1: Okay, good. That's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs.
3: Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio.
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our writer for the program is Rich Dietman. Our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives, and I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please. Please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.